Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, with Calgary a step closer to an arena deal, we speak with the leading sports economist about what the evidence tells us about such projects. The 24 Sussex Drive dilemma. Do we spend $34 million to fix the Prime Minister's residence or tear down this historic building? Also, Alberta's Crown Prosecutor shortage remains a big problem. Plus, a look at the state of Alberta's photo radar debate. We have never wavered from our principles on this. And our number one principle is public money must be spent for public benefit. And so as long as what is presented to us today meets those criteria and principles, then I think we'll be able to have a very good conversation with the public over the next several days about whether this is something the public thinks makes sense. When we came to those mutual uh, conclusions, okay, I get that. Then I thought only then could we make some progress, and we made some real good progress. But it, it took a long time for, for not, not to get respect, but to, to really understand uh, each other's position. Well, things have certainly changed, haven't they? That, of course, is Mayor Nahed Nenshi and Ken King with the Calgary Sports and Entertainment Corporation basically singing the same tune. There was a whole lot of acrimony in the past and a very big difference of opinion on the question of how to partner on an arena deal. Now the two sides uh, have come together. The deal was announced last night. And barring any, any twists here, this is going to be voted on Monday. I think, you know, putting aside how you feel about this deal or how you feel about the broader question of public dollars going to a project like this, that's a real quick turnaround. How many people are, you know, on summer vacation, maybe not even fully aware uh, of what's going on here? We're going to do a week, barely a week uh, of consultation, and then we're going to make a decision on this. That seems really strange to me. Uh, so, look, at, at first glance, uh, this, this deal could be a lot worse. Certainly when you look at deals that have been implemented in other cities, municipal governments, provincial or state governments that have really been taken to the cleaners. This isn't that, but it is still a considerable investment of public dollars into this project. And look, maybe that's what people want. Right. I mean, ultimately, it's up to our elected officials to decide how to spend our money. And presumably they're making those decisions based on what we want. And if people want this arena, then maybe that's where that money should. But there are opportunity costs here. Money being spent on this is money that's not being spent elsewhere or, frankly, money that's not going back to where it was taken from in the first place. So is this at the top of our priority list? Now, the city maintains there's going to be uh, no tax increases necessary to pay for all of this. But that's because they're basically sucking up every last dollar uh, in reserves and available money in the uh, capital budget. 
So again, money that's going to this isn't going to be available for anything else. And if we're okay with that, then so be it. But let's be very careful about pretending that this is anything more than than an expensive infrastructure project. The idea that this is going to be some kind of economic catalyst for the city, I think, really needs to be put to rest. There may be other reasons to be in favor of this. That shouldn't be one of them. Well, joining us for some thoughts on all this, very pleased to, to welcome to the program today one of North America's leading sports economist, uh, economic experts, Brad Humphreys, is a professor of economics at uh, the University of West Virginia. Brad, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. It's great to be back on your show again. It's been some time. Yes, it has. And we appreciate you making some, some time available for us and sharing your valuable insight with us. It, it is interesting. I, I think, you know, just in terms, you look at the debate right across North America, that this has kind of become the, the de facto position now, isn't it? That this, I guess this is just how business is done. Uh, yeah, it's, it's deeply ingrained now into the negotiations between sports teams and cities. Uh, that that this what we see happening in Calgary right now is mirrors what what I see everywhere else in North America all the time. How did it get that way? Well, you know, I guess it's better than uh, back in the bad old days when when one hundred percent of the uh, cost of new sports facilities was borne by the local government. Um, so, I mean, in that in that sense, we've had some progress on mm-hmm. this. The facilities have gotten so much more expensive that if you look at how much taxpayers are paying, it's actually gone up in absolute dollar amounts uh, because of the increase in, in facility costs. Right. What's the right way to look at this? Because, you know, as, as I alluded to, I think, you know, this often gets billed as some kind of economic stimulus or, or I think the economic impact of these kind of projects really gets exaggerated. I mean, is, is that the wrong way to look at this kind of a project? No, that's exactly how to, how to look at, at it, Rob. I think I was listening to you just before I came on. I think you've laid it out just right. You, you just cannot, Calgarians cannot expect to get tangible economic returns on this in the form of new jobs created that wouldn't be wouldn't be created otherwise or higher wages or something like that you've got to look at this as you know a community and social benefit it's there's civic pride at stake and there's the image that calgary has uh of itself as a world-class city and you know those things are important and i'm sure a, a new arena will will improve that and of course you know, Flames fans are going to be very happy about this because they're going to get a new facility with better sight lines and, and better concessions and, and better parking and all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And that's valuable to Flames fans. But you, you can't sell this as, uh, well, the the poster that I read says that it's a key pillar for putting Calgary back on a favorable trajectory for future growth and prosperity. That's just not the case. There's no evidence anywhere in North America that new arenas lead to higher future growth in a city. And, we, we, and we've got a lot of case studies, right? There, there's a lot of evidence on this question. 30 years worth of evidence, yes, in published in peer-reviewed economics journals that find no evidence that, that you know, long-term growth is going to be spurred by this. So so long as you look at it as, uh, as this is going to be a nice thing for Flames fans and for Calgarians in general to feel good about themselves, and, and if you're okay spending 200 and Seventy-five, three hundred million dollars on that, then then I think go ahead. Yeah, 
It's interesting because, you know, it's not just about the, the arena anymore, the stadium. I mean, we, we hear about these districts, right? It's, it's about building a district. And, you know, the hope is that around this new arena will be, well, we're not sure what, maybe hotels, condos, <laughs> retail, restaurants, bars, I suppose. And, you know, the argument is, well, this will help pay for this because there'll be new businesses and those new businesses will pay property taxes. And, and this is all going to be great. But what, what gets left out of the equation there? Well, what gets left out of the equation is it's it's unclear that you really need a new arena to develop a, a district like that. I think that, you know, you want to revitalize a certain part of, of your city. Uh, you can do it with a museum. You could do it with uh, some sort of concert venue. You could do it with uh, many other, you know, cultural centers. Uh, and who's to say that the that ancillary development in terms of uh, new mixed-use retail residential wouldn't happen without spending, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on, a, on an arena. We don't know. Mm-hmm. And, and do these new businesses that, that maybe benefit from being a part of this district, are they benefiting at the expense of other businesses that exist elsewhere in the city? Uh, almost certainly. Based on, based on the scholarly evidence, uh, you know, what a professional sports facility and a hockey team playing in it, it's really good at concentrating economic activity there in and around the arena on game days and maybe on, on some uh, non-game days. But it's the evidence does not support the idea that people are going to be flying into Calgary from the rest of North America and visiting Calgary just because of this arena. What, what that economic activity in and around the stadium represents or arena represents is entertainment spending by Calgarians that would have been uh, spent somewhere else absent this new arena. So you're not really getting new economic benefit. You're just moving consumer entertainment spending around the city from one place to another. Right. And I guess if it's a, if it's, if it's a priority to concentrate that in a certain area, then, then so be it. And I guess we can look at Edmonton where, yeah, they, they built a new arena in um, was kind of uh, a rundown part of downtown. And, and it's it's changed that area. There's an arena, there's office space, there's businesses. Yep. It's had an impact on that area. And, and presumably the, the same could be said here. Sure. There's there's absolutely no no doubt that, you know, New arenas are really good, again, at, at concentrating economic activity in, in one part of town. Yeah, you can do that. There's, there's, that's, that's clear. Yeah. I mean, I, I think to some extent, though, I mean, in a city like Calgary, where we already have the franchise, right? We already have people spending money on tickets. We already have people going to, to bars or restaurants to watch games. We're, we're kind of replacing what already exists, right? So that really mitigates whatever kind of impact there might be. It certainly does. Yeah, I mean, yeah, people are already going to see the Flames. Uh, they're already going out to dinner before they go to a Flames game. You know, and this, so in that in that sense, you're really just moving economic activity a very short distance within the within the area. Yeah, because the whole question of the economic impact of these projects ties into the question of the economics of pro sports. And and there's a real fear, and it's not just in Calgary. It's a card that's played in in virtually every other major city in North America. We have these debates is do you want to lose the team, right? There's a real civic pride wrapped up in having that team. It's, it's a real heartbreaker, I know, for fans in cities that have lost their team. But what, what are the economic impacts of having pro sports? Well, it, uh, yeah, look, I'll, I'll, I'm just an economist, but I'll be the first to recognize that there are many, many people who have a deep emotional attachment to a team like the Flames. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that has value. 
I mean, we can. Some economists would uh, put dollar values on that. It's not huge, but that has value. But the yeah, the the other than the civic pride and 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 those sorts of things, the professional sports. A professional sports team is really not that big in terms of. Uh, the economic footprint that it has on a city the size of Calgary, an economy the size of Calgary's economy. So the question then of whether the, the city needs to, to pony up in order to help keep the team, it, once again, the arguments need to be much more than just economic. They do. They need to, they need to extend beyond the, the, the direct economics of it and, and take into account broader questions about the civic identity of calgary i think which is again important nobody nobody says it is not Mm -hmm. i mean it's interesting i I saw today forbes had published its list of the 50 most valuable professional sports franchises and and the top 50 there's not even a single nhl team on the list the the argument often is that you know there's different levels i guess when it comes to professional sports in terms of market in terms of leagues so the calgary flames are certainly not the dallas cowboys or the new york yankees but the argument is that you know in a city like calgary not realistic that a pro sports team could go out and and build its own facility that maybe that works in new york or maybe that works in toronto but not in in a place like calgary What, what do you make of those kinds of arguments yeah, I'm a little skeptical of that. I mean, it works in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. That's smaller than Calgary. Uh, and, th- of course, the business model for an NFL team like the Packers is different. Um, but I, I think, I mean, if you're, if you're able to fill your arena and you're able to sell tickets at, at the average ticket price of NHL franchises, then you should be able to finance your own um, arena. And you should, you know, investment bankers or banks should, should be willing to loan you the amount of money that that you're going to need to build a new facility, uh, no matter what the what the size of, of your city is or the market is. I mean, Calgary's a big city. There's more mm-hmm. than a million people there. I, I don't see any reason why, you know, a profitable business is a profitable business. You should be able to access credit markets enough to, to you know, if we were talking about some sort of manufacturing plant, there'd be no question that uh, that you have a business plan that shows that you're going to be profitable over time, uh, you can borrow money to put the capital in place to do that, no matter if you're selling hockey tickets, uh, tickets to hockey games, or you're selling, you know, some uh, automobile or something like that. Well, we'll leave it there uh, for now, Professor Humphreys. As you say, there's there's plenty of economic uh, literature out there. People are interested, and uh, I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to talk again through this process. But really appreciate you making some time for us here today. Uh, it's great to be on again, Rob. I'm happy to talk again at some time. All right. Look forward to that. Take care. Uh, that is Brad Humphreys, uh, professor of economics, West Virginia University, uh, one of the uh, leading experts in North America on the question of sports and economics and has published numerous papers on this very central question about the economic impact of this. I suspect most Canadians know the address, 24 Sussex Drive, probably the most famous address in Canada, next to uh, 3320 17th Ave. Is that where we are, Patrick? I don't even know our address, but I do know 24 Sussex is where the prime minister lives, except for the fact that the prime minister doesn't live there. Uh, Justin Trudeau, after becoming prime minister, decided not to move in to 24 Sussex. And the building has remained vacant since. And it doesn't appear as though anything's going to be decided until after the election. 
This week, the federal conservatives accused the Trudeau government of dithering over critical upgrades to 24 Sussex. But it's not clear whether Andrew Scheer would be prepared to move in should he become prime minister in the fall. Uh, To repair 24 Sussex is going to cost a lot of money, like an insane amount of money. The National Capital Commission estimates would cost nearly $100 million to renovate not just 24 Sussex, but some of the other official residents. And by the way, uh, Rita Hall, the, uh, the governor general, doesn't live there either. So we have this odd state of affairs where we have these official residences. Now, by the way, and, and Andrew Scheer does reside in Stornoway, which is one of these buildings, and that is the leader of the official opposition. So at least someone's living in that. So what do we do with Sussex? 24 Sussex, that is. Our next guest says we could do a lot better. Chriselli has a piece in the National Post today, nationalpost.com, uh, on this issue. Uh, columnist for the National Post. Chris, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. I, I don't know if you could find a, a house anywhere in Canada that would be valued at $100 million. I mean, why, why is it such an insane amount of money to, to fix up these residences? I don't know. I mean, the, the cost that the National Capital Commission has for 24 Sussex specifically is $34.5 million. And I believe the most expensive house ever sold in Canada was $39 million. Wow. And it was a hell of a lot more impressive, frankly, than 24 Sussex Drive. No kidding. Which is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a stately old pile, but it's not particularly beautiful. It's not particularly historically significant. Um, it's only been, uh, I mean, Saint Laurent was the first prime minister to live there. So for the majority of Canada's history, uh, it wasn't the prime minister's residence. Why does it cost that much? I mean, why does it cost $3 billion to fix up center block? I mean, a parliament, like, you'd have to ask the National Capital Commission. They are notorious. I mean, this is not the kind of organization that takes the lowest bid, <laughs> put it no, that that's way. for sure. Um, and, you know, there's, uh, like, you can understand why it would be an expensive job. The place is full of asbestos. It hasn't been maintained properly for years, you know, they're, they're talking about putting central air conditioning in a in a 150-year-old house, which is a reasonable thing to do, but which costs a lot of money, but not $34.5 million. That is just, I mean, it, it, that, that's the sort of figure that makes me think, especially since um, it's not that special a house that people aren't really attached to, unlike Parliament. Um, just knock, the, knock it down <laughs> or get rid of it. Like, yeah. I'm not surprised no political leader wants to spend $34.5 million on it. It's a crazy amount of money. It is. And again, as you say, I mean, this isn't exactly the White House we're talking about here, mm-hmm. right? I'm, I'm sure the Americans wouldn't bat an eye at spending $30 million to, to fix up the White House. But this is different. This is different in a lot of ways. That, that What is the, the meaning and the, his, the historical significance of 24 Sussex? I mean, that's the conversation we need to have, that if we have somewhere different that the prime minister lives, is, is that such a bad thing? Well, that's right. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm one of these kooks who, who might even argue that the Prime Minister of Canada doesn't need an official residence. But I, I think I'm, I'm in the minority there. Um, but, you know, he's, he's the Prime Minister, right? He's not the President. He, he, 24 Sussex Drive was not designed to and should not be for receiving, you know, foreign diplomats and having big, giant state receptions. That's mm-hmm. the Governor General's job, in, in theory, although she doesn't seem very interested in um, you know, so I, I don't. You don't need this enormous house, and it's not good for that purpose anyway. I mean, the National Capital Commission had a report last year where it basically said, you know, the dining room is 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 
way too big for a family of five to eat in and way too small to have any kind of formal uh, reception in. So the history of it is, is basically the government expropriated it in 1943. They stole it. <laughs> stolen land um, from, the, from the owners because uh, they wanted to own everything along the Ottawa River. Uh, and they fixed it up at a, at a huge cost even then. Mm-hmm. And Saint-Laurent wasn't too pleased about it, apparently. Um, you know, he didn't like the symbol of symbolism of it, and, uh, but he moved in, and, and everyone has since done it. But, I mean, nobody can really... It's, what, there's no historic events that people associate with 24 Sussex Drive. I mean, Princess Diana went for a swim there, I think. That's about all I can tell you <laughs> about it, other than that Justin Trudeau grew up there. Um, the Trudeaus are living comfortably in Rideau Cottage. Uh, they have, you know, there's Harrington Lake. <laughs> That's a half-hour drive away. Kim Campbell lives there. There's no shortage of buildings. Um, there's no shortage of, uh, shortage of official residences. So I think it's just time to, to turn the page on this and say, look, nobody wants to fix it, so let's explore other options. The funny thing is, I think the address is more famous than the building. I don't think most Canadians have a clue what it looks like. Like, if you were lost no, somehow in that yeah. neighborhood and you drove by it, I mean, you wouldn't know the significance other than maybe, you know, the, the guards in front or whatever. But, I mean, it's the building itself, I don't think, as you say, is, is anything that resonates with Canadians. Well, you can't go there. No. I mean, it's the Prime Minister's house. I mean, it's not like the White House. You can tour it, uh, and you can tour Rideau Hall. And, and, and that's, again, I don't think that's inappropriate. It, it you know the head of government as opposed to the head of state. I don't, I don't think people want to treat through the Prime Minister of Canada's house. Um, but th- that just underlines the fact that there's no real attachment um, that people have to it. And, and it's not, you know, no one argues that it's of a, a, a major historical significance other than the fact that Canadian Prime Ministers have lived there. But Canadian Prime Ministers have lived all sorts of other places. Um, we've done three years without a Prime Minister in Rideau Hall or in... Um, 24 Sussex, and literally nobody cares. Right, nobody, no, nobody has noticed. Nobody yeah, exactly. is bemoaning the fact that the Prime Minister is not living in this house. Uh, there is an organization, uh, Heritage Ottawa. Uh, they have, have written urging the NCC to, to preserve 24 Sussex. They say, please do not condemn this fine building to landfill. So, so there's someone out there who sees something fine about 24 Sussex. I, I'm, I'm not sure what that is, but maybe is it is just... Because of its age, I mean, as you say, it's, oh, there's it's, older buildings. It's 50 years old, and and it and it's you know it was built by it was built by um, oh I'm going to forget his last his name Courier I think was was the name he was a lumber baron, and and so you know it it's sort of it's emblematic of Ottawa's history you know from a, a lumber town to the capital of Canada, um, you know I would expect a heritage organization to defend any 150 year old sure. house against um, the wrecking ball. Um, and, and, and I'm not, you know, I don't enthusiastically say we should knock it down, but if no one else is, no, if no one is going to spend $34.5 million on it, then what is it? It's just sitting there costing the better part of $300,000 a year to, to, to not fix. Um, you know, the, the, the Andrew Shears thing that, that he'll sort of, um, uh, explore new, ways like cut red tape cut regulation sort of implying that do some kind of end run around the ntc but i mean i think if that was possible it would have been done by now it's so easy to imagine um that he would just do either what justin trudeau did which is just move into rito cottage and say this is fine uh or 
I don't know, maybe even move into 24th Sussex. You know, Stephen Harper clearly enjoyed sort of tweaking people's noses and saying, oh, it's fine. It's a perfectly habitable house. We don't need to do any of this maintenance, and it's just a bunch of fancy um, liberals. But but the fact is, the place is falling down. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I well, think something it's has to be... Right. And yeah, you're right. I guess I, I, I suspect that that Andrew Schumer just go about doing what, what Justin Trudeau has done. Just just ignore it because it, it's a political headache and it's otherwise it's not on people's agenda for the most part. But inevitably, we got to do something because it, it, it is, as you say, I mean, it's it's a mess. It, it needs to either be fixed or knocked down. We got to pick one eventually. Yeah, I mean, unless there's someone who, who I mean, if I, like. I would happily give it to this historical society for one dollar, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then and then we could, then we have thirty four and a half million dollars um, to to you know to, to build a heck of a new house if that's what we decide to do, um, or buy another house somewhere in Ottawa and, and and make it the prime minister's official residence if we need to, which we don't seem to, but you know. You could, you know, get a Canadian architect. You could make a hell of a house for thirty-four and a half million dollars. But why we would build it for the prime minister, I don't know, because that's it's not a public building. Or does it have um, to be there, right? I mean, if we're going to have a new residence for the prime minister, do we need to somehow preserve this this address so we can refer yeah, no. to it by that? No, I mean, what it's 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 it could it would serve you know whatever. Like if someone can if someone can build a museum in there, and and I, look, I, I don't know. Um, I suspect they could do better. It would cost a lot of money, but that's one of the proposals is, is to put a museum in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the rest of it could just be parkland. It's beautiful, nice view over the river. <laughs> you know, th- th- I think that would be a, a better use of it. And then, I mean, what's the most expensive house in Ottawa? Like eight, eight million dollars less? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fix up the security around it. Then you've got a brand new prime minister's residence. Um, I'm sure you could find something really nice. Uh, so yeah, I, I just think it's, it's, we've, we've reached this strange all party consensus. Nobody wants to admit this, but this is the fact. Nobody's going to fix this damn place. Um, you know, maybe Justin, I mean, maybe if Justin Trudeau's reelected, it'll just like, you know, day one, he'll just sign off on it and then hope for the best. But he could have done that day one, first time around. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and he didn't, you waited four years and let it get even more expensive to fix. So I, I think, I think it's over. I think we just. It's it's time to face facts. There are it's 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 kind of embarrassing. I agree with people that it's come to this, but now that it has come to this, um, you know, we can do a lot better, um, or we can make do. I mean, I don't even know what Rio Cottage looks like. I have no, no. idea. If you, it's the same with Twenty Four. Well, I know what Twenty Four Sussex looks like, but I don't know what Rio Cottage looks like. Um, nobody cares where the prime minister lives. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's uh this it's not a public building it's not somewhere people can go uh it's a wreck let's wash our hands with it one way or the other i think we should all right nationalpost.com people can read your piece there chris thanks for joining us here this afternoon appreciate it thanks rob all right take care chris selly columnist for the national post nationalpost.com uh, so he's okay with, with tearing it down or even just giving it to Heritage Ottawa or the National Capital Commission, whoever wants it. Here, take it. People can look at it. You can fix it up. They get a museum, turn it into a park, whatever. Does the prime minister, not just this prime minister, right? And we need to think of it in terms not just where should Justin Trudeau live, but where should the prime minister live? Whether it's this one, the next one, the one after that, et cetera. Do we need an official residence for the prime minister? And does it need to be 24 Sussex Drive?
this isn't a new problem, but it's a problem that hasn't gone away. We haven't heard as much about this problem recently. But uh, Alberta is still plagued with a shortage of Crown prosecutors. And it's still the norm that, that cases are falling apart because we don't have the prosecutors to, to oversee these, these cases. New numbers from the Alberta Crown Attorneys Association finds that, in fact, hundreds uh, of cases have collapsed because there aren't enough Crown prosecutors. An average, uh, every week, an average of one full day of low-complexity trials are stayed. But, I mean, that's, that, that's, that's on average. And there have been weeks where that's even, even higher. So why haven't we been able to fix this problem? The new government has promised, or did promise anyway, to hire 50 new prosecutors. When's that going to happen? How much of a difference is that going to make? Joining us to talk more about the situation is Matthew Block, uh, secretary with uh, the Alberta Crown Attorneys Association. Matthew, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rod. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, like I say, I mean, this, this isn't a new issue. I mean, obviously, the, uh, the Supreme Court, I guess it was the Jordan decision, wasn't it, that, that really made the, the timeline of these cases an issue. But how long have we been plagued with this problem? Right. So the Jordan decision was a few years ago, but it, it was already starting before that. There's been a number of years when there's been fiscal restraint in Alberta, and the the number of charges and the severity in, in, of charges in Alberta keeps going up. So the number of prosecutors versus those just keeps going down and down. And Jordan just, just really sped that up. It essentially took all the files that we have to prosecute and crunch them into a much shorter time span. And so how, how does that work then when, when it comes to prioritizing or, or triaging, I guess, is, is the term that's been given to this? So there's a number of factors that, uh, that we're directed to look at in terms of triaging files. And they, they essentially, it's a priority on the serious and violent offenses. Um, so the, those charges that are more, either um, have more victims or uh, more serious crime, those are the ones that we're supposed to be prosecuting. And so they things start to fall out uh, underneath that, and um, I think there can, there can still be some what most people would consider fairly serious charges that, that don't meet that standard. So what kinds of, of cases then are falling by the wayside because of the, the shortage of prosecutors? Well, the, um, what's been getting some attention lately is uh, there's been staying of entire days of what we call low-complexity trials in Calgary. Uh, a low-complexity trial, we just define it as a, a trial that takes less than half a day to prosecute, uh, but those include a really wide range of things, including simple charges like shoplifting and mischief, but there also will be, will be assaults in there uh, and, and quite a range of charges. There will even be some more serious charges like assault causing bodily harm and uh, assault with a weapon, although those aren't the subject of the stays that have gotten some attention. But, yeah, there are, there are files with, with real victims that are getting stayed because of the lack of prosecutors. Right. So what does it mean then to the workload of, of prosecutors? Are, are they having to take on more cases? Yeah, it continues to go up how many charges per prosecutor that we're seeing. Um, and, and triage is meant to sort of get rid of some of these charges, but, it, but it's not very... Uh, it's not a very good solution for that for a lot of prosecutors. The problem with it is, is that um, when prosecutors want to prosecute files that are viable, if it's not a viable charge, we've always been getting rid of those. That's, right. that's never been an issue. 
Um, but you have to look at these charges in detail. So if I want to, to get rid of 10% of my charges, it doesn't save me 10% of my time or something like that. I have to spend a lot of time going through all these charges, and uh, you know that, that still increases. And again, the severity keeps going up and up, and we keep on seeing uh, more serious charges. So it, it's getting hard for every prosecutor, particularly in the regions. Right. Does it affect the decisions then being made by police when it comes to laying charges, or are they proceeding the same way, and then it falls to, to prosecutors to try to sort this out? You know, I, I haven't had a lot of contact with um, them in terms of uh, actual policy-type decisions being made, but, you know, police officers are are well aware that, uh, that we are less able to prosecute certain types of, of charges, and they are laying some less and we hear from agencies smaller agencies such as service alberta that they're they're laying less but when it's coupled with the the rising severity and things like how in the mclean's most dangerous cities we had eight of the 20 in uh, in alberta in 2019 those charges are going to be laid no matter what we can't stop laying those charges in terms of the, the situation across alberta is it is it more or less the same province wide or is this more acute in, in some areas than others it's certainly much more acute in the regions. The regions have had some serious problems. Uh, one of the the issues that we've had in recent years is um, problems with getting prosecutors to the regions and retaining them. And, and part of the big problem with that has been there's been a lot of salary freezes. We've been on a current salary freeze for about two and a half years. Uh, and that just makes the, the positions less competitive. So, you know, there's things such as there was the Rural Crime Initiative recently where there were supposed to be 10 new prosecutors hired to address these, these issues with rural crime. And um, they were able to hire, hire nine of those. And then one, I believe in Grand Prairie, uh, they couldn't even hire there because there was a lack of appropriate candidates. So that prosecutor was eventually hired in, in Calgary. Oh, wow. Uh, I guess it's not really an option, then, is it, to move cases to other jurisdictions? Say, well, this, you know, there's, there's more resources in that jurisdiction. They, they could take on this case. If somebody's charged with theft or assault in, in Calgary, you can't send them to Grand Prairie, can you? Right, yeah. It, it, there's a very limited ability to do that. We do have these Edmonton and Calgary regional response units that, that tried to do that somewhat. But it just, you know, it, it, it creates inefficiencies. Uh, and you can't really, you can't move things around too much without uh, making it probably worse in the end. Do we need these to be full-time Crown prosecutors? Is it even an option in some cases to almost, I guess, contract out to, to lawyers to come in, take on a few cases, prosecute a few cases? Is, is that even an option? I know that the government used to do that years ago, that there were, were more ad hoc prosecutors, and they haven't done that in, in recent years, and I'm guessing that's that's um, due to cost, was my understanding years ago. But, you know, we're, we're talking about we, we need so many more uh, that, like, the Alberta Crown Attorneys Association has been asking for 50 more for a couple of years now. We need so many more that, that really just a few part-time prosecutors here and there wouldn't, wouldn't really give much of a solution. Mm-hmm. Well, 50 is the number that, that the UCP ran on. They did promise to hire 50 new prosecutors. Where, where do things stand then on that plan to hiring more prosecutors? Do you know? Uh, we, we haven't heard any details yet. They, they have been saying this repeatedly, and we're very encouraged by the fact that the new minister has, uh, has taken up the, the 50 new prosecutors. We haven't heard any details on that, but we're, we're definitely looking forward to seeing those extra bodies in the courtrooms. 
And what's the process then when it comes to hiring a crown, a crown prosecutor? I mean, ideally, you're hiring someone with expertise who can who can jump right in and take on these cases. But is is that always the case? No, there. It, it really depends on the office. A lot of times, uh, especially in the regions, you will see more junior prosecutors being hired, and that again has something to do with the uh, with the competitiveness that we're finding ourselves or competitive problem that we're having right now. Uh, and you will see junior prosecutors come into more junior positions in our mm-hmm. office and then sort of get mentored up to a higher level. Of course, having having a higher level prosecutor hired is great, and, and the offices are often looking for that. But again, with the competitiveness issue, we've actually been seeing a lot of these high-level prosecutors leaving and going to other jurisdictions. All right. Well, very important uh, information, Matthew. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate this. Thanks, Rob. All right. Take care. Uh, That is Matthew Block. He's secretary with the Alberta Crown Attorneys Association. So they're saying, look, this problem didn't go away. And it's uh, as bad as it it was a few years ago. Hoping then that the new government is going to follow through on this promise to hire 50 new Crown prosecutors. And I guess for now, uh, they're kind of waiting and seeing like everybody else. Alberta Matters is our series uh, this summer. Once a week, we're taking uh, an important issue and spending the day through both television and radio, exploring all sides of that issue. And and this next one that we're doing today is certainly a hot-button issue. It's not a new issue, photo radar, uh, but it has come up recently. In fact, the NDP promised, the UCP as well, uh, to follow through on that when it comes to new rules on photo radar. That's the issue we're focusing on here. Uh, Doug Vason. Uh, with more on how the new government is concerned about how photo radar is being used by municipalities. Transportation Minister Rick McIver says his predecessor, Brian Mason, got it right when he vowed in February to humanely put down the cash cow. Now that the Conservatives formed the government, the same guidelines on photo radar will be put into effect. Well, it won't be implemented unless we do it. So uh, my intention is to do it and again to watch and learn and and then see whether that's the place we want to land or whether some other change will be made in the future. Banned in transition zones, photo radar is also not allowed on high-speed multi-lane roadways unless there is a demonstrated safety concern. Also coming up in March, enhanced reporting to make sure it's focused on safety and not on revenue generation. Doug Vason, Global News. Right. So, I mean, ostensibly, it is supposed to be about safety. Otherwise, there's, there's no point to it. That if the argument is, of course, that speeding is dangerous and we need to discourage people from engaging in that habit. And photo radar is a tool, or so the argument goes, uh, that we get people to slow down. And once people do that, our roads will be safer. And I think people are skeptical of the argument because of how photo radar has been deployed. And the perception that it's uh, become a bit of a cash cow revenue generator for municipal governments. But what does the evidence tell us about its effectiveness? Now, our next guest argues that, in fact, photo radar can improve road safety and therefore save lives. Ward Vandlars, VP of Research with the Traffic Injury Research Foundation. He joins us on the line here this afternoon. Ward, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, photo radar is, is obviously controversial. That's certainly not unique to Alberta. But what, what does the evidence tell us about whether this is an effective way of, of getting people to slow down and, and making roads safer? Well, it's very simple. If you look at all the research that has been done around the world, then uh, if photo enforcement is uh, properly implemented, then yes, it does save lives. Well, that may be the key. Then, When you say properly implemented, what, what does that mean? 
Well, essentially, with most of the uh, measures that we use to uh, to improve road safety, what we want to accomplish is that there's a good balance between people thinking that they will be caught when they do something wrong um, or when they're not following the law, and that in, in balance with actually the actual chance of being caught. So if there's a good balance between both, then uh, the uh, the effects will, uh, will be there. And what does that mean? Well, it basically means that you have to let people know that you're doing this. You let you have to tell them, um, I have this uh, photo enforcement program that I'm going to be implementing in the city. Um, this is the reason why we're doing it. This is how we are going to be doing it. And you, you let people know, and, and they will know that there is a good chance that they will be caught. Um, also, it will be perceived as, as fair because they're, uh, they're being informed about it. And so if you then couple that to also actually ticketing people who then still uh, speed, well, then uh, the effects will be there. Right, so it's it's about that that mindset and creating that that disincentive to to going over the speed limit. Well, exactly. Uh, people actually, uh, a lot of people, almost everybody actually believes that uh, speeding is something that's advantageous that will that has a benefit uh, because people believe if if I speed, I will be at my destination faster. So there's a lot of perceived benefits. Um, if, if you obviously um, believe that you have a good chance of being uh, being ticketed, then then that uh, perceived benefit might be eroded, perhaps to the point where now you're changing your behavior. Um, something that people really um, underestimate or misunderstand is that it's not necessarily true. Um, if if you're driving faster, that you will get to your destination faster. People think about speed in terms of like how a train works. Um, they believe if I go faster on the, the train rails, I will, be, I will be faster at my destination. But the reality is because we share the road with so many other cars, uh, the faster we drive on the highway, for example, the more of a, an accordion effect there will be uh, when people slow down and speed up. And, and that creates bottlenecks. So what people don't always appreciate is that the most... Um, the optimal speed for everybody to get at their destination, the fastest, is not necessarily the highest speed. Yeah. Uh, the optimal speed for a highway might be perhaps 90 kilometers per hour as opposed to 100 or 110 or 120. That's interesting. What about the argument, though, when it comes to, to the incentive to slow down, that uh, photo radar isn't, isn't slowing anybody down in that moment? It's, you know, days or weeks later when someone gets that ticket uh, that they realize that, uh, oh, no, I, I, I was speeding. I shouldn't have been speeding, that, it, that it's not immediate. Well, so that's basically what happens if you if you don't look for that balance between making people believe that they will be caught and actually catching them. So if you only um, if you're only uh, preoccupied with trying to catch people um, and you don't really spend a whole lot of time on educating the public about uh, you know why we're doing this and what what the benefits are and how it can help saving lives, and if you don't let people know in advance, hey, you know, we're as as a as a city or as a community, we're doing this because we want to uh, improve road safety. We want to reduce the number of lives that are being lost because of speeding. If you're not telling people that in advance, well, then yes, you're right. Then, you know, the effects might be, uh, might only come afterwards. But if, like I said at the outset, if you're, if you're implementing the, the program properly, uh, then that balance will be achieved and that problem will, will not exist. Do you think it's unfair then to, to, call photo radar a, a cash cow as, as many do 
Um, I think it is. Um, again, the, the key is it needs to be used properly. It needs to be implemented properly. And, you know, it's true. We have to admit there's been instances uh, where uh, certain jurisdictions around the world, um, they haven't necessarily done a good job at implementing uh, photo enforcement. And, and sometimes, um, you know, politicians have bluntly <laughs> acknowledged that the only mm-hmm. reason why they're doing it is to, is to you know, collect more cash. Well, um, as a road safety researcher, um, I can tell you that, um, you know, this should not be the intention of such a program because that's when um, uh, life-saving measures begin to be eroded uh, because then people lose their confidence in it. But, uh, but I can tell you, having studied this for a long, long time, uh, speeding is one of the, the most uh, important problems uh, that leads to a lot of people dying and, and severe injuries on our roads. And if we can do something uh, to reduce that, then, then of course we uh, we need to um, uh, we need to do that. And um, by by focusing on photo enforcement programs and by implementing them properly and by not portraying them uh, as a as a cash grab, then uh, that certainly uh, that will certainly be an effective outcome. Uh, some cities use it more than others. Even with within Alberta, there are some cities that that don't use it. Others that that use it uh, in, in in limited ways. Uh, other cities that that deploy it quite extensively. Um, I mean, is is there a right balance? I mean, theoretically, we could put photo radar machines on on every single street. But what what's the right balance when it comes to to using this tool? Well, the right balance really is um, it needs to be implemented. Uh, embedded in a, um, a holistic approach where it's coupled with education, um, where you inform uh, the public that this is taking place, where you're educating them about uh, the risks of speeding, where you're educating them about the benefits of using such a measure, and where you explain you know, all of the money that we're collecting from those people who are not getting it, it's going to be used for this or that purpose to better our community. Um, and that's really the balance that we need to be looking for. All right. Well, some important insights. Uh, Ward, really appreciate your input on this uh, issue. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you. Good night. There you go. That's uh, Ward Vandlar. He's uh, VP of uh, Research with the Traffic Injury Research Foundation. Says, with some caveats, photo radar can be effective in making roads safer. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.